Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello from Buffalo and welcome to In Social Work. My name is Luann Back and I'll be your host for this episode. Trauma-Informed Oregon is a statewide collaborative whose purpose is to prevent and ameliorate the impact of adverse experiences on children, adults, and families. The emphasis of this collaborative partnership is to promote and sustain trauma-informed policies and practices across physical, mental, and behavioral health systems, and to serve as a centralized source of information and resources within the state of Oregon. In this podcast, Dr. Mandy Davis discusses how and why Trauma-Informed Oregon was created under state legislation and the current work being done through this initiative. She describes the four domains that serve as the foundation for Trauma-Informed Oregon. Challenges and barriers to promoting and sustaining trauma-informed policies and practices are highlighted, as well as strategies for overcoming unforeseen obstacles. Dr. Davis emphasizes the need to train and provide social work students with the skills needed to understand the impact of trauma and why addressing trauma at the micro, macro, and meso levels is imperative. She concludes by commenting on the benefits and limitations of having legislation pertaining to trauma-informed care at the state versus federal level and how trauma-informed policy might be successfully promoted in other states. Dr. Mandy Davis is an Associate Professor of Practice at the Portland State University School of Social Work and is co-director of Trauma-Informed Oregon. Dr. Davis works with Trauma-Informed Oregon to provide training, consultation, and workforce development to organizations and systems around trauma-informed care and trauma-specific services. She was interviewed in January 2018 by Josie Diebold, MSW PhD student here at the UB School of Social Work. My name is Josie Diebold. I'm an MSW PhD student here at the UB School of Social Work, and I'm here with Dr. Mandy Davis. Thank you for taking the time to be with us, Mandy. Sure, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so to get started, we just wanted to begin by talking about trauma-informed care. So can you give us a little bit of what is trauma-informed care? Why do you think it's important? I'm the director of Trauma-Informed Oregon, which is in Portland, Oregon. And so I want to tell you a little about how we frame that definition of trauma-informed care, which is kind of interesting because when our work first started, we, you know, our work was very much grounded in the uh, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration's definition, as well as the work of Maxine Harris and Roger Fowlett in Community Connections. So originally, our, we really grounded what it was in the kind of domains of, of Harris and Fowlett, which was safety, power, and value. So really looking at 
how people experienced those things and how organizations either promoted safety, power, and value in those they served or um, did not promote those things. Since, you know, since we've evolved and are working, we really now, Trauma-Informed Oregon, really takes on that definition of the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, of, I think it's the four R's, so that realizing the widespread impact, recognizing signs and symptoms, not only in those that we serve, but also in our workforce, it's a pretty big focus of ours, responding by actually changing policy and practice and procedures, actually doing something with that knowledge base, and then not re-traumatizing, kind of resisting re-traumatization. So that's really how we kind of define trauma-informed care. But one of the big things I think we focus on too is that there, there are lots of different ways to define trauma-informed care, and we really honor that. So we've chosen to use the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, but we really look at, you know, there's some just real core tenets across different sectors and different disciplines, and that they all tend to kind of work together and headed to the same direction. Absolutely. Even you point out Harris and Fallot are values. Values are obviously these bigger concepts, and I really think Sam says for ours, totally just fit into that very naturally as well. Exactly, yeah. And you brought up something important mm-hmm. that I just wanted to really pull out of there as we move forward, is that you pointed out that trauma-informed care is more than just recognizing and responding to trauma in clientele, but also being aware of that with the workforce. Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the things that our work at Trauma-Informed Oregon is really focused on actually organizational change in the sense that we, and a lot of our work focuses on workforce wellness, because we really believe that we can have all the best trauma-specific services, those interventions that we have really good information about, you know, so we have those evidence-based or evidence-informed or traditional healing methodologies that we know work for individuals and families and groups. What hasn't, I think, been successful are two things, engagement into those services and the workforce being well enough to then provide those services. So we, so we really look at kind of the two big things are, that we focus on are workforce wellness. And that's no small thing. Like we, we don't have actually a lot of good research around what are strategies organizations can put in place to keep our work, you know, workforce well enough to provide those services. And we really focus on the harm institutions have done to recognize that as part of trauma experiences is institutional oppression, systemic oppression. So that when we talk about engaging populations into those services that you might think work, but no one's showing up because your parking lot is already activating them or because of the question five that you ask them out of 30 in the first 20 minutes you see them or because of who you represent to them based on the system you represent. So really trying to get organizations to pay attention to those two areas, workforce wellness and then their own kind of how they activate people based on the rep, you know, how they, what system they represent Absolutely. and how they may change engagement with folks. Yeah, it's a really systemic focus. Yeah. So that being said, with those being the two areas that Trauma-Informed Oregon is really focusing on, can you tell us a little bit about how Trauma-Informed Oregon was created? Yeah, it's a kind of a good story. I always have to make sure I keep my dates. So so the work in, in Oregon, and I think what's important to start with in this whole movement of trauma-informed care, this emerging movement, is to remember that to, to remember that a lot of people have been doing this work before we called it trauma-informed care. So we want to honor that culturally specific programs, you know, equity, you know, folks who've been really engaged in that work have been doing trauma-informed care. It just wasn't called that. So we want to evolve and build on and kind of acknowledge that work ahead of time. Trauma-informed Oregon really started out of, in Oregon, there was a policy developed at the state level around trauma-informed care. I think 2006 was the first policy. And that policy then kind of sat for a while. It didn't get a lot of traction. 
And then a group called the Children's System Advisory Committee, we call it CSAC. And this is a group that advises the Addictions and Mental Health Division of the State of Oregon. Now what's important about that group is that they're made up of service providers and more importantly of folks with lived experience. So they have advocate voice, youth voice, and adult voice, and parent voice on that committee. And that group wrote a white paper that basically said we're missing the boat on trauma and we need the state to pay attention to this. And they wrote recommendations from their perspective of what the state should do. That white paper with that voice behind it propelled the state to then kind of revamp the policy. So then that policy rolled out in 2014. And that's one of the things I think Oregon is known for, which is exciting, is that we have, through our Oregon Health Authority, we have a policy that says anyone receiving funding, all of our behavioral health programs that receive funding from the state, have to strive to be trauma-informed. So that's what the policy says. And so what then happened is the legislator funded then trauma-informed Oregon to be developed to help those agencies with the resources they needed to kind of comply to that policy. We fit our work in four domains. So one is training and education. So we spent a lot of time since 2014 kind of going around the state, providing information, training, presentations, but also like we developed a trainer database, so really trying to find people who also were trainers and, and different areas and content expertise in different areas to connect people to those resources across the state. So, and then education, and for social work this is exciting, is we just opened up, I think last summer was the first run of a trauma-informed care class. And the reason that was important is we had an abuse and trauma class that was focused on trauma-specific services. So now I teach a trauma-informed care class, which is meso-macro related. So how do we change organizations and policies? So that's education. We also have a partnership with Oregon Health Science University to put this information into residency practice. So we're trying to kind of back up the education into professional, you know, professional training programs as much as we can. The other thing we're working on is online training modules that will be free on our website so that really focus on providing access to folks who maybe don't have funds to be able to hire in trainers, et cetera. So that's our training education area. We also started training the trainer. Then we do kind of community building and resource development. For us, that's really about our website, that we really try to keep focus on organ-specific efforts. Because as you all may know, when you go on the web and put in trauma-informed care, it immediately gets overwhelming. Yes. <laughs> so, and there's already really good sites out there. So what's, what's been important to us is to say, what's already out there, and do we have something to add to that or not? Or, so we really focus, you know, we do a newsletter every couple months where we really are asking, we ask our constituents in the state of Oregon to write about their experiences or their attempts or what they need. And then we go out, part of our deliverable with our contract is to go out in the state and ask people, what are you doing? What's working? What do you need from the state? What do you need from each other? So that's that, trying to, really trying to build community in this kind of emerging field where we don't have any kind of do this and you get this. And then policy and investments, helping to educate our legislators about what trauma-informed care is. Oh, House Resolution, Congressional Resolution 33, which basically is a, you know, it's kind of a feel-good legislation, but says that people need to pay attention to trauma. But what's important about that is we got into that language around systemic oppression, vicarious trauma of the workforce. So really trying to, I think one of our messages is try to elevate this to include not just childhood adversity, but to include these other aspects of adversity and toxic stress that are important kind of for that whole picture, that whole social determinants or structural determinants of health mm -hmm. picture. So policy and investment that way. And then implementation is really what we're focused on right now. So now, okay, so you, you're excited, you got it, you want to do it. What tools and resources do you need to help you know you're doing it? And more importantly, are we measuring any kind of outcome? 
So that's kind of our where we're headed, trying to figure that part out. So those are our, really our four domains, implementation, outcome, policy, investment, education, and then community building. That is clearly really expansive work that you guys are doing. So I'm just curious to know, I mean, since 2014, when y'all got started, what have you found to be the most successful in the work that you're doing, whether it's in one or all of those domains? Is there anything that just has really resonated with trauma-informed Oregon and with the communities that you're touching? I think a couple things. I think the way I'd answer that is to say trauma-informed organs, I think all of that has been successful to a, to, a, to a capacity place where we're like trying to keep up. But I think it's more, because it's not what trauma-informed organs is doing. I think one thing that's been really important is we try very hard to be responsive to the needs of the citizens across Oregon. And so those community building efforts are really important to go out and say, what do you need? And if every, so everyone said, we're here, we're ready, but we don't know how to do this. Like we don't know how to say we're doing it. Then we stopped and we kind of reprioritized and we worked on developing standards of practice for communities out there. That's been really successful. The information, the awareness or the awakening of folks across the state has continues to amaze me. And I say that because we have people from, you know, healthcare and child welfare and juvenile justice, but we recently, you know, had, we're having conversations with folks doing climate change work. We did a great project with natural resource managers. So for folks who are restoring habitat, but are engaging with folks who are houseless. I think what's been amazing is to see so many different sectors, industry people connect to the content. I think the reason they're connecting to the content is that it is about a really important message we give is that we can't define it for you. Like you need to think about this, like here's this content, here's this knowledge. And we ground ours in kind of the near science, you know, the neurobiology, epigenetics, adverse child experience, and resiliency. It's kind of that, the knowledge foundation. And we provide that same information to everybody, whether they're librarians, custodians, natural resource managers, or legislators. You all get the same information. But how you manifest that or apply that is going to be absolutely up to you and your population and your intent and your purpose and all of that. But that's also challenging and chaotic and feel overwhelming. So it's holding all that complexity has been, I think, the success is not saying there's a one size fit all because Eastern Oregon looks different than Central Oregon, than Western Oregon, right? And honoring all of those regional identities, populations is, is to me what makes it successful and daunting at times. When I think about any type of initiative that is literally statewide, regardless of the state, it is overwhelming almost at its core. I mean, that is hugely expansive. In saying that, in your work again, since the beginning of Trauma-Informed Oregon, what have you experienced as the most significant challenges or the biggest barriers to the work that you're striving to do? Let's see. Well, I think one of the biggest barriers is probably what I just talked about. And probably not a barrier as much as a challenge is holding that complexity, is trying to not want to get to a place where it's like, this is the answer or now we know what we, you know, that we're learning and we're growing and we're evolving. And I feel like, from, at least from a social work perspective, we talk about kind of being in the middle of the movement and wanting to honor that chaos while also giving people a direction, right? Because people need to know what to do next. They want to connect on what's next. They want to be successful, to be sustainable. And so finding those ways to say, well, here's where I th here's our best knowledge as of right now, and just being really transparent in what we know and what we don't know. I think it's a challenge that we need to figure out how to measure this. And as a researcher, that's not easy, right. um, you know, it's messy. And I think we've got, I think we need to think innovatively about the methods we have to do that kind of work. I'm, I'm looking forward to methods that really engage more real-time feedback 
Like, what are you doing? And is it working? And how do you know? And find a way to do that across the states and across sectors, I think is, is challenging and going to be important. There's capacity. And I think what I mean by capacity, which is why backing this information into especially the meso-macro intervention level into our schools of social work is critical for me because what I need is a workforce who can do that level work, right? So, you know, we train, I think social work has historically trained people to do trauma-specific services, but if I need someone to be a consultant to a large organization to help them be trauma-informed, there's not a big workforce for that. Even if I have the money, it's finding people who know how to do that work. And so I think, I think that's probably my biggest challenge right now is how do we build that workforce who can do kind of that organizational change level work. Yeah, I feel like those are even related, the two barriers that you just pointed out. The fact that there needs to be a way to measure both what's happening and the results of that, and then also being able to build the skills mm-hmm. to just do the work to begin with, right? to get people out. And we kind of need to know what's working to know what skills to target, right? I mean, that's that relationship. I, I think the other challenge that's important to mention and that we are working hard and trying to do is to make sure we're intersecting trauma-informed care with existing things, you know, or, or with emerging content as well. So, for instance, particularly of interest to me is how do we talk about an equity lens and a trauma-informed care lens without it having to be in another thing? Because it's going to be burdensome to organizations. It's also just not accurate, right? If you're doing really solid, successful equity work, you're doing trauma-informed care work, in, in my opinion. Um, I think you can do trauma-informed care work without being equitable or not holding an equity lens. I mean, I think, we, I think we have a responsibility to make sure we're having those conversations together. And so what can you add to your equity initiative to then be able to say it's also trauma-informed or vice versa? Because, first of all, people just aren't going to do it if it's another thing. Like, the burden on the workforce is really important to me and because I want it to be successful. I want to pay attention to what can happen in our systems and in our work that we jump to an easier thing, right? And so for some people, sometimes equity work feels hard, so they jump to trauma-informed care feels, you know, and so then we, we leave behind equity and my, you know, so we want to not, we don't have that happen. Mm-hmm. You're seeing now people are jumping from trauma from care. I want to say resiliency. Indeed. Right. And of course, all of that is important. All of it is important, but let's make sure we're holding all of it together or at least keeping it all on the table, even if it's too messy to figure out in a pretty picture. I'm curious to hear a little bit more when you talk about the, the way in which frameworks can be integrated. So trauma-informed care and equity work. When you say equity work, I'm wondering if we can like share with the, the listeners a little bit of what does that look like and where do you see the natural connection between that and trauma-informed care? I don't even know if I can answer that. For the listeners, I'm smiling because this is, these are the conversations I think we need to have because it's actually not an easy answer. So I'd sat down with a person who, does, who uses the equity lens, which is a particular way of approaching equity work. Um, and it has like the four peoples, you know, kind of the questions to ask every time you make a policy or decision to make. And it's really focused on racial equity, but it's called the equity lens. So that particular model, I sat down with a person who does that work, and I was like, okay, let's, here's trauma from care, here's equity. I'm sure they just easily match up. And we kind of started laughing three hours later, where I was like, oh, it's not as easy that they might, you know, and they don't, you know, they do, but it's, we need to get better at articulating that, right? So I think trauma-informed care, right, is about acknowledging the impact of adversity and toxic stress on our citizens and how that impact can alter engagement or success in services. That's one way to think about it. Equity is making sure that 
an identity doesn't doesn't determine your outcome. And so it's interesting because trauma from care actually kind of looks at that more specifically, like it does determine your outcome. So it's interesting to have, I think it's a great conversation. So I don't have an easy answer to say where they fit in. Mm -hmm. But what I can say is when I look at a culturally specific organization that is, you know, successful and serving a population that has experienced historical trauma, they're doing trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you dive deep into that organization, you're seeing tenets of relationship right, of trustworthiness. You see those trauma-informed care principles and you see those principles of equity and voice and choice. So it's there. Academically, we haven't figured out how to articulate that, I think, yet. Absolutely. It's ironic the way in which they clearly complement one another and fit into one another, and yet it's also hard to speak of them as an integrated whole. So in saying, talking about academics, and you've mentioned our need to to train social work students, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what skills social work students uh, are going to need to be helpful in this emerging field and what you perceive in your own work in being an educator of social work students. They need all the skills. (laughs) So the joke in, in this new course I'm teaching is that it's tricky to teach this because you need to know something about the impact of trauma. So you need to know something about neurobiology and epigenetics and adversity and toxic stress and the impact of those on different types of people and in different experiences. Because what we need you to do in trauma-informed care macro work is to apply that knowledge to our policies and procedures so that you can look at an intake process and say, that's going to be too activating. Or, you know, and, and, that, and what I always say is trauma-informed care is like science and art, right? We're using the science about the impact of trauma and adversity and toxic stress to understand why someone may be not able to engage in a particular way or why are, more importantly, why our services are activating people. But the art is that, so it may be great for you to put music in the lobby, but if the burden on staff because the music is too loud is too much, then that's not worth it if it doesn't reduce activation in those accessing services. So that's the art, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think the skill that I see most needed and often lacking is to be able to take that knowledge, science, and apply it on a macro level and not, not, you know, kind of beyond just what does the lobby look like, but what are those policies, what are those practices? And, I don't, and I'm sure someone in organizational business would know better than I the words, but I need people or people need to be able to see the future, you know, like see ahead of them, right, to really kind of notice a moment in time and then how it's going to play out and, and be able to hold that complexity. I think it's probably the key skill because you're going to have to hold an organization through that complex feeling and feeling overwhelmed and that big things aren't happening quickly or big changes are happening but outcomes aren't happening at the same time. So kind of be able to shepherd people through a process but lots of people through a process, a large system through a process and be able to be kind of that constant um, that you're, you know, this is working, we're doing this, that's happening. So the skill set to be strategic, a strategic thinker I think in trauma-informed care, at least in, in my world, it's about connecting really lots of really big systems. So being able to think about how do we connect the dots for people so that we're not siloed. I think it's about promote, having skills to promote people to be working together without feeling like they have to be taken over. right? So it's not always about being in the same room, but it's about knowing what each other's doing and how do we promote and support that. So you know, being able to sit in a room, having the skill set to sit in a room and notice what's going on interpersonally in that room of stakeholders while also shepherding them to a forward is, that's what I need people to know. I don't know what all that's called, but 
<laughs> I think social workers. Uh, so all of my degrees are in social work. So I enjoy the field, and I think it's a I think it's a skill set social workers can have, because I think it's kind of like clinical case management, right? It's doing the work, but with this lens of also understanding the interpersonal impacts and what's happening, while pushing federal and state policy, right? I mean, those two things can come together and have to come together to be successful. I just think about really the model of generalist social work practice. It is not just micro practice. It is all three layers from the individual to family to community and all the way up to societal levels. That's what social work is about and applying our values and principles and education to all of those levels. I think regardless of where we connect as a professional. So I'm curious, you talked about this a little bit, but so obviously trauma-informed Oregon got its start because of state-level legislation. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about the importance of that coming from state legislation as opposed to federal-level legislation. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, and I will say, especially for maybe social work students listening, that you know one of the areas I wish I'd pay more attention of in my social work education was in policy and legislative work. <laughs> Because, and some of it's just that I'm, I'm finding it fascinating and I've been kind of thrown into it and it's been a learning curve. And yet I am, I am realizing the importance of it. So we originally were funded through our legislator and we are now currently part of our Oregon Health, the Oregon Health Authority budget, which is kind of a shift of funding stream. But the fact that the Oregon Health Authority kind of has this policy around trauma-informed care has no doubt, I think, been super successful to move people in Oregon to pay attention to want to do this work and to feel supported. But I think an important message for folks that's been really successful for one of us to go back to that is that we are university-based. So Trauma-Informed Oregon is housed at the School of Social Work at Portland State University at the Regional Research Institute. I say all that because the policy is with the state, the Oregon Health Authority. Oregon Health Authority funds us. But what that has done is give some pretty immense credibility to the work. So we are not the state, right? right? We are not the policy or the auditors but we're funded by the state. So basically providers around Oregon can say, the state cares about this. And, and in our policy, it calls out the need to speak to vicarious traumatization. So I mean, that's a big deal. So the state is saying, we care about this. CSAC is saying, we care about this. We care about our workforce. We care about trauma. And then there's this university-based neutral party that can help develop resources and provide assistance as necessary, which means all of our material is free. And that's, so those are pretty important dynamics to make it a successful endeavor, because we're nonprofit-based. What's important, I think, about state policies is that they're more flexible. So, and they allow the state to do what's right for the state, right? And so I think it's important for every state to look at uh, different policies across the state. Where do those policies sit? Are they with public health or the health authority? A lot of times you'll see them in education. So we have trauma-informed care-related policies scattered amongst you know, different systems in the state of Oregon. You know, usually federal policy can then kind of spark things in states, or a bunch of states can do things which sparks a federal policy. You know, the purpose of federal policy is usually to have some standard across the country, right? and maybe to have some funding attached to it. And that's important, and you want states to have, you know, some flexibility to be able to apply that in the way that works best for that state. Some states are really far, some states are brand new, and so kind of where they need to put the work is gonna be important for them to define. So that same thing that we're, we're challenged and committed to doing in the state of Oregon, which is to say wherever you are is great, and what do you need wherever you are, and hopefully there's other people we can connect you to to help you with that. The same thing has to happen on you know, kind of a national level. 
and recognizing where states are and what issues are important to them. How people define trauma-informed care to me is going to always say, I don't care what you call it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if you want to call it building a resilient, a lot of schools we work with call it building a resilient school. That's great. Building a resilient community. Call it hope. Call it whatever, you know, as long as it's kind of under those same principles and values. And what you call it's important because that's your language and it's going to have you commit to it. So, so that to me is the, the reason to push for state policy is because there's more flexibility in it. Now, it's interesting to, for people to think about where they want those policies to sit, right? Again, different agencies will have different expectations and policies around that. Absolutely. So in kind of looking forward in terms of your experience with trauma-informed care and the policies that made it come to fruition, what, what do you perceive it would take to see policies like the ones that led to trauma-informed Oregon to happen in, in more states across the U.S.? This is a good question because I what I always want to say is you know what what is not happening like why aren't they happening because I want to I really do find in, in a lot of the different places I intersect with folks is that it actually is happening so like a lot of states do have these things right so the one question is what do states have and is that helping the systems and agencies in that state promote what they want you know because that's important because you can have a policy it may not be like Oregon's original policy didn't do a lot. Right? And so it took a couple rounds. And what's really powerful to remember is that it took the voices of those with lived experience. But it, but it took multiple times. So I think, I think it, you know, probably what it takes is knowing what's happening in your state currently, what policies have been tried and maybe didn't make it or didn't go through so that they can be revamped. So don't start from scratch. It's a really important message because, again, most likely it's been done somewhere. And to also look at what other states have done in which it's been successful. I think it takes probably a coalition, you know, you gotta get people together and it takes talking about it. And I, I just firmly believe because it's, it's continues to show itself is that we just talk about it and we keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. I think what I would say is what's important as we move those policies forward is that we move them forward in the most inclusive way possible, right? And that we don't allow ourselves to kind of maybe go a simpler route. I mean, sometimes strategically you go a simpler route and then you expand the scope. The policy in Oregon right now is geared for behavioral health providers. Now, trauma for Oregon works with everybody. That particular policy is geared to behavioral health providers. So there's conversations now on trying to widen that scope. Mm -hmm. And that's also not a bad route to go either. I mean, kind of think about get successful in a small area, to like what the words mean, the language, and get people comfortable, and then find a way to kind of expand the scope, I think is another way to think about that. But I think it's important to make sure your, you know, your legislators, your commissioners, your local officials know what trauma-informed care is. Right. Right, so finding a way for kind of everyday folks, which is another important, I think, message about trauma-informed care from my perspective is that it really, when I started doing the work, it, when I started as a clinician in trauma work, it was like people who got information about trauma were clinicians in trauma work, and that was it. And trauma-informed care has been so lovely because it's been like, no, everyone needs to know this, everybody, right? And so I think that's the other thing that we start doing that kind of public health messaging, right, around the social determinants of health. That, that'll naturally kind of rise up to policy. And then, and then I think social workers need to be ready to kind of help advise what the policy should be. Trauma-informed care and that science base that you talked about, you used the acronym NEAR, mm -hmm. the neuroepigenetics, ACEs and resilience. That is knowledge that I really think is useful for any sector. I mean, like anyone out there. And yeah. so, yeah, that's definitely really powerful. Yeah, and it's really powerful. Like when we work at the school, the ones I'm most interested in are the front office staff. Mm -hmm. And and because you know, in most organizations, those who see the biggest behavior are the ones with the least access to training, right? 
And and yet that's the group who's like eyes were wide open. They're like, oh, this is amazing. I get it now. So I mean, that's where kind of real change happens. It's folks who haven't had the exposure or the access to the information, which is why we're pretty committed to trying to you know have accessible information, right? Not everybody needs to be an expert in epigenetics, but you need to just know it exists because right. you need to understand that the, what's happening in front of you may be bigger than what's happening in front of you, right? It may be what's happened to a group of people over generations. And that's, that's as far as you have to go on some level. Absolutely. Get a little bit of an idea of what might be underneath the iceberg. You don't need right. to understand the whole huge bottom of the iceberg, you know, what's beneath the surface, but right. to understand a little bit. In terms of trauma-informed Oregon, just to kind of close us off, do you see anywhere in particular where you're headed with trauma-informed Oregon? I know you've alluded to a little bit of the areas that you are really focused on now. So when you think about the future, the coming years, where do you see yourself? So a couple of things we're really focused on from a, like a task. You know, so what we're focused on right now is the education and training really around the online training modules so that we can um, increase our capacity of people who train and can educate about trauma-informed care. With that is a real focus in the next couple of years on culturally responsive and linguistically appropriate training and training materials and resources and really trying to dive deep into that, does training look different, and how do we do that in a way that's you know, through an equity lens. So paying attention to that is where we're headed. Community models, I think, is something we're paying attention to because people are starting to look at this from a community perspective. So paying attention to what, you know, what do those practices look like, what does it mean to have a trauma-informed community, so kind of scaling it up a bit. Definitely implementation, so really around the outcome work. So we'll focus a lot on how can we measure either an agency's readiness or the outcome of trauma-informed care. So both for locales, for a city, for a community, for a county, or for an organization. So I think a lot of, a lot of our interest is there. And then policy and investment, where we can educate policymakers to make sure this content is embedded across lots of policy. You don't want just one policy. I want this embedded in all policies, and I want to make sure the conversation, again, is inclusive of, you know, adverse childhood experiences as well as experiences of systemic oppression and racism and those type of things are kind of staying on the table. I think that's where we're headed. That's where Trauma for an Oregon, kind of what we're working on, the work on intersecting equity work with trauma-informed care work and restorative justice work. Like how do all these things kind of come together? So, so that's definitely on our agenda to attend to. And I say attend to, like we're trying to just figure out, can we put it in a graph? Like how do we just have it in such a way where when you go out and talk about this, you're remembering to talk about all of this? What I actually kind of can wake up in the middle of the night thinking about is where is trauma-informed care in five years and in 10 years? And is it still a trauma-informed care? Is it just embedded in the work that we do, right? And so, so that's where I am interested in how we're connecting work across the country, internationally, right? Looking at how other countries are, are addressing this issue and what we can learn from that. Right? So I think that's where we're headed. That's it's a lot of work ahead of you guys. <laughs> exactly. And uh, no, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing about trauma-informed care, about the work of Trauma-Informed Oregon, and all of the nuances in terms of how that connects to the field of social work and to federal policies, state policies, and all of our organizational functioning. Excellent. Well, thank you for letting me talk about it. You've been listening to Dr. Mandy Davis's discussion on Trauma-Informed Oregon. I'm Luann Beck. Please join us again at In Social Work.
Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.